Hello church, and if you would open to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read through verse 17. This is the Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve and then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then also to all the apostles, last of all as one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So whether it was I or they, So we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that He has raised Christ whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so, Father, we know everything rides upon Your Son coming out of that grave alive. Physically alive. We pray You would deepen our confidence in that today. And we pray, Father, that some here would believe. They would believe that what happened 2,000 years ago is not only historically true, but they would believe it is their only hope to have their sins forgiven and to live eternally with You. And so Holy Spirit, we just ask You to come because that's the only way that's going to happen. And so come Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our helper, be our guide in these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two types of sermons, for Easter, that is. Um, they're, and I'm not talking about the type uh, sermons where uh, this book is kind of put to the side and you know, you're told, all is well with you, you're amazing, God needs you, 
we need you, come back next week and we'll give you a PS5, not that type of uh, sermons. But when the Bible is actually opened, there are two types of Easter sermons, and I, I would call the first type uh, celebratory sermons, where you really just celebrate, He is risen. And everybody just marvels and rejoices that He's alive, and He's still alive today. And, and I think those are the best Easter sermons. And then the other type of Easter sermon would be what we might call an apologetic Easter sermon, uh, where you you basically go through the gospel narratives and you show proofs and you show evidences why we should all believe that Jesus is alive. And what I want to do today is kind of mix the two and rejoice and celebrate the apologetic of the resurrection, that we have proofs and evidences that He has risen and in hopes that that deepens our confidence in these things. Um, we're going to start today a four-week series on the resurrection, uh, on what we'll call the apologetics of the resurrection. And when I say apologetics, let me just maybe, for those of you who aren't familiar with that word, we aren't spending four weeks apologizing for the resurrection. That's not what apologetics means. Um, but giving a defense, that's what apologia, a, a defense um, of the resurrection of Christ. And this isn't merely for skeptics giving a defense of the resurrection. It's also for the faith of the saints that we need to know why we believe this and on what basis we believe this. And so pastorally, that's our hope for the next four weeks is those two things. And you say, well, why do we put apologetics and the resurrection together? Why link those two things? And I would just say for 2,000 years, the primary defense of the truthfulness of Christianity has been the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily. For 2,000 years, that has been the church's defense of why we believe Christianity is the only religion, worshiping the only God, and that there is no other. All of that comes back to the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Eastern or Western church. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the early church or the church of the Middle Ages or the, Ref the, Re the Reformation or post-Reformation church and the Puritans. Or, it doesn't matter what point in history we're talking about. This has always been the defense of the Christian faith. It is, it has always been, it will always be dependent upon if Jesus rose from the dead or not. And it really does come back to that. And other religions, it, you know, it is important to remember, other religions aren't like this. So, take Buddhism, for example. If you walk up to an enlightened Buddhist and you say, hey, I'm not sure if Buddha uh, historically existed, they would probably laugh at you and say, doesn't matter. Because their faith isn't a historical faith. It's not resting upon any type of historical information. Um, it's just about the feeling of enlightenment. And a Christianity is a historical faith. So whether Jesus physically rose from the dead, everything depends on that. Everything. And so, um, there's a lot of things we could talk about when it comes to a defense of Christianity. We could get into the problem of evil. 
we could get into, and we will in the next couple of weeks, how do we know this book is even true? On what basis do we believe this is the Word of God? Uh, we could talk about all sorts of things, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, our ultimate apologetic is that Christ rose from the dead. And, and, and just tag on one other thing, I, I know a lot of people are saying that in our day, um, people aren't asking if Christianity is true or not. Which is, you know, younger people especially, that's not the question they're asking. They're asking, why isn't God woke? You know, why, isn't, why doesn't He accept the LGBT agenda or all these other kind of cultural things? Why, why doesn't Christianity affirm all of that? That's the questions that many are asking. And so we just did a series on that, right? We've been doing apologetics for, for some time, um, but, but those aren't the central apologetic for the Christian faith. The resurrection is. One author said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that He said. If He didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what He said? The issue on whether... The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This is a critical question. This is the essential question. Did he raise from the dead or not? And that's not just the church's apologetic. That's uh, the apostles. That's the scriptures apologetic in defense. So look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's going to lay out Six things, I'll just point us to these very quickly. Verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And I'm foolish to stand here and you're foolish to listen. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in vain. Verse 15, if Christ has not been raised, then we are found to be misrepresenting God. We are lying about God. Because we're saying that God raised Christ whom He did not raise. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep, those who have died previously, have perished. So that is Abraham, Moses, David, Martin Luther, any other Christian who's died previously is just dead if Christ is not raised. Verse 19, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. And so people should feel sorry for us because we're spending every if for no other reason, the fact that we just spend every Saturday morning gathered together worshiping a God that's dead and that we're lying about is a reason to pity Christians if He didn't rise from the dead. However, flip it. If He did rise from the dead, everyone who doesn't hope in that resurrection is to be most pitied because they have ignored the risen Son of God to whom they will give an account. Everything hinges on this. Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection. If He doesn't come back to life, you will not come back to life. If Jesus doesn't go up to heaven alive forever, we will not go up to heaven alive forever. If He doesn't resurrect, there is no way to get rid of your sins. 
or to have confidence that even the death of Christ rid you of your sins. And that's a bold claim, isn't it? That's a very bold claim. If Jesus just dies on a cross, big deal. Doesn't really matter because many people died on crosses. And even if He claimed, my death on that cross will forgive your sins, doesn't matter. If His bones are in the grave and He's still dead. We have no confidence that salvation has been accomplished. It's another death of another man. But if He's alive, if He's risen, He dies and then He resurrects as He predicted He would do, now we can have confidence, as many have said, that the Father has put His stamp of approval upon the death of His Son. We can believe that what He accomplished on the cross is enough. It is finished and our sins have been dealt with. So, when someone comes to us with their questions about Christianity, we should take those serious, um, those matter. There's all sorts of questions that people have. And we should answer those, but then we should say, but at the end of the day, what do you do with the fact that Jesus resurrected? I mean, how did that man come alive again? You've got to deal with that. Everybody has to deal with that. And I have two questions I want to put before us in terms of an outline. And this is the first question. What evidence does Paul give for resurrection? What evidence? And I'll give us four things that he lists here in this passage. Look at verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus actually dying is important because if He doesn't die, there is no resurrection. He wasn't dead. And, and that's why many of the most popular arguments against Christianity have been regarding His death. Uh, for example, the swoon theory. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. It's not really a popular uh, argument because it's not that amazing. Um, even non-Christian secular historians have admitted this. Uh, David Strauss said about the swoon theory, it's impossible, and, and maybe I should define the swoon theory, they basically say Jesus didn't die, He just kind of passed out for loss of blood, and then He kind of came back, uh, and, and so He wasn't actually dead. But this is what David Strauss says. He says, it is impossible that a being who had been stolen half dead out of a tomb, who, who, who would have crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging and strengthening and recovery, could have convinced the disciples that He is the conqueror over death and the grave and the Prince of Life. I mean, think about the condition in which Jesus would be after the crucifixion, which everybody knows happened. I mean, there's no way you're going to convince everybody that He is conqueror of death. He would have been horribly wounded and uh, this is not a very solid argument. Um, really, I think if skeptics want to understand if Jesus was dead or not, they should go back to those responsible to kill Him. 
which would have been the Roman authorities. And if anybody knew how to kill someone, it was the Roman authorities. They created crucifixion to guarantee death after an unspeakable amount of suffering. And it was administered by a professional executor, so literally a professional killer. He was paid. His job was just to make the person suffer as long as possible and then make sure they're dead. That was his job. And remember when it was getting late, Jesus was hanging on the cross and they wanted to ensure that He was dead before nightfall and they took a spear and they pierced it through His rib, up through His rib into His heart, puncturing His heart so that blood and water came out. They took Him off the cross and buried Him because He was dead. And again, this is... It is enough that the Bible says that, but we could go into extra-biblical sources, historical sources, Pliny, uh, the younger, Josephus, others uh, who confirm Jesus died on a cross and was dead. Here's the second evidence. It says, verse 4, He was buried. He was buried. An archaeological... Uh, Evidence uh, shows that there were actually probably about a hundred or so tombs of very well-known people enshrined in that area. And so you can picture uh, all these tombs with flowers and different things kind of memorializing the person. And then you would have easily been able to find Jesus' tomb because there would have been security team by it. It would have been very easy. There would have been no security team by these other tombs. And uh, Matthew 27 says that he was buried with a rich man in his death. So Jer uh, Joseph of Arimathea was this man who was a part of the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is kind of like the, um, the Jewish equivalent of uh, the Supreme Court. He asked for Jesus' body, put it in, in the tomb, and that actually fulfilled Isaiah 53 that said he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And here's the point. You could have found where he was buried. It was not a secret. He wasn't put off in some secret place. And here's why that's significant. Because after the resurrection, the early church goes out preaching in what city? Jerusalem. Where the body of Jesus was buried. So people could have gone, what are you talking about? He's over there. His body's in the tomb. But it wasn't in the tomb. And therefore... It stuck, and people began to believe it. Now, this leads to an argument. Well, what if someone stole the body? And that lie was fabricated right after the resurrection. It says in Matthew 28, here's the origin of that argument. Some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests what had taken place, and they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people, his disciples came by night, and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him, keep you out of trouble. So they took the money as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And to this day, among the Jews. Uh, somebody stole the body. Now, guys, these disciples, I mean, think about who's left, who cares about Jesus at this point. You've got these 12 men, and... <laughs> like, they're not the sharpest 
tools in the box, right? These are, this is not SEAL Team 6 ready to break Jesus out of the tomb. In fact, SEAL Team 6 and the special forces are actually the ones guarding the tomb. So the chance of these guys getting in and, and, and ridding uh, the guards and, and removing the body is uh, just not legitimate. And here, here's maybe the most convincing argument, I think, uh, when you look at all the, of the arguments. What happened to these 12 disciples after the resurrection? Right, these guys are scared, they're doubting, they're not knowing what's going on. But how do we account for all these disciples, minus John, uh, who died bloody, terrible, torturous deaths for Christ? And then watch many of their family members die the same deaths. Like, what do you do with Andrew, who was crucified? Or Bartholomew, who was skinned alive? Or James, who was beheaded? What about James... The other James who was thrown off the temple and killed. Or Jude who was beaten to death with clubs. What about Matthew who was speared with a stake after questioning the morals of the king of Ethiopia? Or Philip who was tortured and hung upside down? What about Simon the Zealot who was crucified and sawn in half? Or doubting Thomas who wasn't doubting anymore when he preached in Iran and India before speared to death, or the Apostle John who they tried to burn alive and got so weirded out that he didn't die, they sent him and exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, or Peter who was crucified upside down. You go, oh, these guys just made up the resurrection and died like that? All of them? Nobody recanted? And their, and their families that bought into the lie they made up also died like that? That's, that's hard to argue around. Look at verse 4. Here's another evidence. It says, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He was raised. And I don't know if you've seen those paintings where... Um, it. it it's hard to depict this in a painting. You can imagine. It almost looks like Jesus is sitting there uh, opening this tomb kind of like this. you know, And it has like this marvel kind of power, super energy that He just kind of moves the, the stone away and walks out. And the, the real thing is nothing like that. Uh, even the angel didn't move the stone so Jesus could walk out. What actually happened was Jesus was gone resurrected, and the angel moves the stone so the eyewitnesses could run in and see there is no body in there. That's what the text actually says. And then Jesus, as we know, over the course of 40 days, appears in physical form to all these eyewitnesses. He has barbecue breakfasts with the disciples who are out fishing. He says, do you have anything to eat? And they said, we have a fish. He cooks it and he eats it to show it's physical. I'm not a ghost. All these appearances after His resurrection. Then look at verse 5-8. through eight. It says, And He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to Paul. He says, me. Now, the biggest thing regarding the eyewitnesses that many people talk about is who the first eyewitnesses were. I'm sure many of you have heard this. Uh, it was women, which to us in our modern day, like, why does that matter? Uh, well, because we're not in the first century. You know, first century uh, for to build or fabricate a story about the resurrection and the first eyewitnesses are women is not a way to build a good story because women weren't even seen in courts of law as credible eyewitnesses. Their, their testimony wasn't valid. And so if you're going to come up with a, a story, you, you, you wouldn't put as your chief eyewitnesses uncredible witnesses. So it shows Christianity not only values women, which is true, uh, but you wouldn't write a story like this unless, unless the real first eyewitnesses were really women and they're just trying to be accurate to what actually happened. And look at this, it says in verse 6, He appeared to Peter and to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. So I don't know how many people are in this room right now, probably twice the amount of people in this room, easily. Jesus appears physically. You think any of those people might have started saying, we were there, didn't happen. Some of those people had visions. They weren't really seeing reality. Jesus wasn't there. He's saying there's 500 eyewitnesses that He was physically alive. You can go ask them. Most of them are still alive. And you've got to think, guys, for us, we're 2,000 years removed from this, but for them, this is like if the resurrection happened in 1990 for us. That's how far removed it is when Paul's writing this. He's going, it was, it was like 35 years ago. A lot of these people are still alive. Just go ask them. All these eyewitnesses. And man, can, sometimes I thought about this a few years ago. This, this first came to my mind. How awesome it would be to be in this church in Jerusalem with the, all these people who were there to not only see Jesus' death, but His resurrection. And so you're having a hard week and you're sitting here like this and, and you maybe during the singing you kind of lean over and you say, hey, I know you were a witness to the, to the resurrection. You sure? Like you really touched, you saw, the, yeah. You're like, okay, thank you, brother, and you start singing again, right? It, it would be, it would be awesome. It would be very encouraging to to have people in your own congregation who actually saw all this. And so this is significant and encouraging. And I think maybe the the most surprising eyewitnesses are Jesus's family. How do you convince your two brothers that you're God? How do you convince your mother that you're God, the Son of God, when she birthed you, but yet she believed He was the Son of God? How do you do that? It's incredible. The eyewitnesses, everything, everything changed at the resurrection. Those who were discouraged and hopeless were filled with hope filled with power, filled with confidence because they got this empirical evidence. 
You know what empirical evidence is? What is verifiable by observation or experience, not just something someone says, something more physical. It's what we call science today. And I don't mean science is kind of a buzzword to kind of promote your political agenda, but science in the traditional meaning, acquiring knowledge through observation or testable experience. Everybody says, follow the science. And if you do that with the resurrection, follow the science. It's undisputable. Says Dr. Simon Greenleaf, a famous Harvard law professor, who said, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in history. Non-Christian law professor from Harvard. Now, here's an interesting one that I, I didn't think about this till this week to kind of add this to the list of evidences, but we actually have an evidence, we do, that the first disciples didn't have. An evidence to Jesus' resurrection. And that is, we have 2,000 years of people who are, and I'll use the way Paul says it in verse 2, 2,000 years of people who are being saved. What do you do with 2,000 years of people who claim to be literally changed supernaturally by the risen Christ? Who say, I was, I was addicted to this particular thing. I was filled with hatred, immorality, lying. And now, by this gracious work of, of this risen Christ, I love people. I forgive. I'm patient. I'm kind. I'm pure. How does that happen? 2,000 year testimony of forgiveness. And you go, and I know the skeptics will say, well, Christians do a lot of evil as well. Yes. And a lot of people claim to be Christians that are imposters. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, you are being saved if you hold fast to the Word I preach to you. You are being saved if you hold fast to the Word I preach to you unless you believe in vain. Which it is possible to do. It is possible to believe in Jesus and not really believe in Jesus. How do you know? The primary way is you eventually fall away from Jesus. And it's proven by the fact that you fall away. But what do you do with the people that don't fall away and are real? Who really bear the fruits of Christ in their lives. What do you do with that? As a skeptic. I want to I try to close, but I want to press this further because um, if there is anybody here who's maybe skeptical of these things or trying to just work through them, I've tried to make the case that there's historical evidence for Jesus' death for His resurrection, or for His burial, for His resurrection, and then all these eyewitnesses, and even those who are really being saved and experiencing the power of the resurrection in their own life. But what is the basis of all of this? That's, that's my second and last question here. What is the basis? 
Why should we believe the evidence? Why believe the eyewitnesses? Because they're dead. Can't go talk to the eyewitnesses now. So why should we believe them? Why believe in His death when none of us here were physically able to see Jesus die on a cross? See His heart stop beating. Why why believe in the resurrection when we weren't able to walk into the tomb and see it empty ourselves? What is the basis for all this evidence and why should we believe it? And I will tell you the answer is in verse 3. I, Paul says, deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. What did he receive? The Gospel. About Christ's death and resurrection, it said, he says it was delivered to me. I received it. And you say, who did he receive it from? Maybe the other apostles? Did they just tell Paul? Because he was later. No. No. Look at, I'll just read Galatians 1.11. He explains, the Gospel that is preached by me is not man's Gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our confidence. What was delivered by revelation, by the Holy Spirit, that's the source. So get the argument Paul's making. He's saying, if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, you don't have your sins forgiven, People should feel bad for you because you're sitting here worshiping a God that is not even the way you think He is at all. And then he says, but we have Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, all these eyewitnesses. But how do we know we should believe them? Third level to the argument, revelation. We, we have this. We have this book. I'm going, to, I'm going to go at this again next week even harder on this point, but I just want to make it really clear here. This is how Paul is arguing. Look at verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried and raised on the third day. Is that what he says? Did I leave anything out? Look at verse 3 again. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the ground of our confidence in the death of Christ, in the burial, in the resurrection. Luke 24. um, I don't know if you all read through the uh, resurrection account. Uh, this morning, I, I read through Luke 24 and Jesus appears, uh, appears to the guys on the Emmaus Road. And, and some of y'all will remember that these guys keep hearing the testimony about Jesus. That morning, they're saying to Jesus, they don't know He's Jesus yet, they're saying Jesus uh, supposedly was going to rise and establish His kingdom. We keep hearing people say the tomb is empty. I don't know. And then Jesus rebukes these two men. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He didn't rebuke them for not believing their friends that went to the empty tomb. Do you get what I'm saying? 
He's not rebuking them saying, they told you they just went to the tomb this morning and it was empty. He doesn't rebuke them like that. He rebukes them for not believing the prophets who said Jesus would die and resurrect from the dead. Because that's the source of our confidence. And then what did he do after that with these two men? It says, starting with the old, or starting with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Romans, for example, doesn't say faith comes by hearing and hearing by all the eyewitnesses. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The basis of our faith is the Word of God, which talks about eyewitnesses. But the eyewitnesses aren't the basis of the faith. It is what God has said. I'll give you one last example. Uh, Doubting Thomas, as we call him. Jesus comes to him right after the resurrection. And everybody's telling Thomas, we've seen him alive, we've seen him alive, Thomas. And Thomas goes, well, good for you, Um Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then eight days later, Thomas and the others are gathered together in a room with locked doors, it notes. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Put your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And many times we just stop there. But we shouldn't, because look what Jesus says to Thomas. He says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. So we often go, man, Thomas, what a lucky guy. He got, of course he believed. I mean, he got to touch the wounds. He got to see. Blessed be Thomas, you know, lucky guy. I would believe too. But what does Jesus do? He says, Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen what you've seen, but believe. Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Everybody wants more evidence. More evidence. Give me something more. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of a fish for three days and then spit out. He said, there's your sign the prophecy of what I would do in the grave. What God has said, church, it is enough. It is enough. And those who have ears, may they hear. Let's pray. Father, Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Son. Lord, as my kids were having an argument, friendly argument this morning, which is more important, Your incarnation or Your resurrection? 
We thank You, Lord, that we do not have to choose. We thank You that You came down to this earth to live a perfect life, to die for sin, to be buried, and to raise. We praise You that You've accomplished all these things and that Your Word has told us it is true. We believe it. We thank You for it. And would you strengthen us, Lord, to go out from here and to tell many the good news. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.